Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scripture reading is from James 3, 13 to 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be back with you. I'm curious, uh, by a show of hands this morning, how many of you grew up with a, in a house with a set of encyclopedias? Most of you? Okay. Anybody happen to sell encyclopedias in college? There are a few people occasionally. Hopefully that's not still your job. That'd be like a pager salesman or something today, right? You know, I've wondered about what year it is or what time frame that this has stopped because I would imagine it's probably basically people my age who had kids who have mostly grown now and then younger probably aren't as likely to have a set of encyclopedias in their house anymore. The heyday of that was really uh, in the 1950s and 60s and in the 70s and 80s beyond. It's because, of course, the internet has completely changed how we gather and distribute and consume information. And that's kind of, you know, happening right now in this generation and has been. It, it was still going into the 80s and the 90s, a little overlap with the internet. internet. You may remember the Friends episode where Joey is visited by an encyclopedia salesman and he only has $50 so he can only buy the volume on V. And so he, then he's trying to weave vivisection and Vesuvius and all these, all these uh, things into conversations. But the, there has a change. There's been a major change that's happened. So in an exercise in deep irony, to find out a little bit more about the history of encyclopedias, I Googled it, of course, to find out. And of course, there were, from ancient times, people collected gather, you know, information together and distributed in various ways. But really, the, the golden age or the beginning of what we think of as the encyclopedia really goes back to the 1700s and what we call the Enlightenment. Because you see, about 300 years ago or so, the leaders of Europe, especially educational and political thought, that if we could just know more about the world, we could be happy. If we just understood medicine and the human body, we could cure diseases. And if we knew more about poverty, we could fix those woes. And if we could understand how the mind works, we could fix society's problems. And during the time of what was called the Enlightenment, so roughly the mid-1600s through 1815 and beyond, most of, of the world's educated and intelligent intellectual people thought and taught that what we needed was to actually get beyond religion and the ignorance of the past and instead focus all of our efforts on gathering knowledge. 
Because if we could get more knowledge, this would stop wars and disease and poverty and suffering. Humanity could become, as they often said, enlightened and mature beyond all its ignorance of the past. Somewhat like the the crew of the Starship Enterprise, peaceful, clean, disease-free, sailing through the universe, helping less enlightened creatures. And one of the key products that came out of that whole way of thinking was the great effort of the encyclopedia, first in France and then in England and other places as well, where it's this place to gather together all human knowledge and, and systematize it. And of course, we have created knowledge like never before. Over the last 300 years, just think about some of the amazing things that have happened from this pursuit. We have cured many, many diseases. We've invented countless amazing things from cars to satellites to phones to music and recording devices, televisions, microscopes, telescopes. We've sailed, humans have sailed through oxygenless space and stepped on the dusty moon. And any of us at this room could open our phones and have a face-to-face conversation with somebody on the other side of the globe. Or like I did a couple of days ago, you could say, hey, Siri, what time does Costco open, right? And how, oh, and it just actually beeped. How about that? <laughs> that was not playing. Costco. Costco opens, and that's the one, yeah. <clears throat> hey, hey, Siri, read me that last text. Or hey, Siri, uh, play me some music to put me in a good mood, and it will. But here's the question. Has all this knowledge made us happier? Has all this knowledge that we've created and has it created the dreamed of society that the leaders of the Enlightenment in Europe said it would? The reality is that though we have built amazing universities, we have multiplied our knowledge, our control over nature in incalculable ways, wonderful things, amazing technologies. The reality is that the last recent centuries have actually been the bloodiest, angriest, most deadly time in all of human history. With more suicide and depression and personal and societal disunity, disintegration, unlike ever before. Because you see, the same knowledge that enables us to invent flying machines empowers us also to use those machines to drop atomic bombs that can kill 225,000 people in a moment. The same knowledge that created electricity that lights our homes at nights can make our lives frantic with screens and never any peace. The same knowledge that connects us with people across the globe enables hatred and oppression to be spread instantly as well. See, it turns out knowledge is not enough to make us happy. We actually need something more and deeper and what the Bible calls wisdom. Not just knowledge, we need wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? What's the difference? Well, wisdom, according to the Bible, is a way of seeing the world, according to God's perspective, and a way of being in the world. It's not just acquiring facts and knowing a bunch of data or even how they connect, but it's actually a way of seeing and a way of being. Wisdom is skilled experiential, integrated, practiced knowledge that only comes from experience. See, knowledge is understanding that to drive a manual transmission on a car, you have to press in the clutch with your left foot, give gas with the right foot, and do that at points where the engine's RPMs hit around 3,000 or so, depending on your car. But wisdom is the experiential knowledge that knows what it feels like to find that magic point where you let off the clutch right at the right speed relative to the right amount of gas. And wisdom is the experiential knowledge of getting stuck in traffic on a hill 
and needing to accelerate and pop off the clutch into first, killing it, starting to roll backwards in the car behind you, slamming the brakes, slamming the clutch down, starting the car again. Right? That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And in fact, I realize that that illustration only works if you've actually tried to drive a manual transmission before. I have a six-speed RX-8 that I love, and I often think when I pull up someplace, I could probably just leave this running and no one would steal it because most people don't know how to drive a stick anymore, right? I've actually thought about it. But if you can move from knowledge to wisdom, you can recognize that the experience is something different than just knowing about it. Reading a manual versus driving or anything is a very different animal. The point is that knowledge is not enough for life or happiness or flourishing as individuals. You and I can be very smart. There are a lot of really smart people in this room. You can be very successful. But of course, that does not truly make us happy. We need something more. We need wisdom about how to live wisely. Now, the good news is that Holy Scripture given by God is precisely that. It's not just a bunch of doctrines or a bunch of truths to believe. It actually is a book of wisdom inviting us to see the world in a certain way as God sees it and to be in the world according to who he is. And we can turn anywhere in the Bible and find that, but there are some places in the Bible that are particularly clearly that. And the book, if you're new here today, or if you've been coming for a while, you'll know already that we've been preaching through this book, this letter of James, which is very much a piece of wisdom literature within the Bible. It is very much speaking right to these issues. And the text we're going to look at today that we just heard read speaks right to them as well. So all throughout this powerful letter, James is talking about wisdom. Let's hear again what he says, particularly in these verses. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Our text today begins with a question that's actually really a challenge to you and to me. Do you think you're doing pretty well in life? Are you one of the wise ones? How would you know that? Are you successful? Do you feel good about yourself? Do people like you? Do you have money in the bank? Do you feel powerful? Are you healthy? Well, James says none of those things are the, the gauge of whether you're wise. Here's the real criterion to know whether you're wise, James says. Wisdom is shown by a life well-lived, not just success or knowledge, but a wise life looks like deeds and habits and relationships that are done in humility. That is a, a life marked by a properly humble attitude towards yourself and toward God and toward others. As Jesus says, and we just read from the Sermon on the Mount, flourishing or happy or blessed are the humble, the ones poor in spirit. Okay, that's helpful. Maybe still a little general. James doesn't stop there. He has something he wants to really drive at. Let's read the next verses, verse 14. But by way of contrast, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is actually earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Okay, that's, that's pretty intense. James focuses a lot of attention right out of the chute here on these sins, these anti-wisdom habits 
these ways of being of envy and selfish ambition and boasting that seems so negative, right? I mean, why, why is James being so negative here? And why does the Bible seem so negative? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, we need instruction. We need guidance to figure out how to live well because the good way is often the opposite of our natural tendencies. The tendency in all of us towards selfishness and then often to envy, as we'll talk about here more in a minute. It's just like not letting a a little child determine their own diet or whether they want to go to school or not. What child is going to want to eat healthy or go to school? None, but we give instruction to them. We guide them. So too, we as God's children, even as adults, we need continual guidance. We need instruction about how to be because it's not natural to us. More positively, I think paying attention to these vices, the reason why James gives us these negative words to start is because by paying attention to them, they can actually be a great catalyst to personal and spiritual growth, not by becoming oddly obsessed with ourselves in that sense, but we can become self-aware of what we're doing. That's that's the value of a text like this is that it's a wake-up call for us to become aware of how we show up. So what is James talking about here? Well, envy, we usually define as something like the feeling of discontent or resentful longing that we have because someone else's possessions or qualities or situation. And envy, this word and this idea in the history of the the church and the Christian tradition is long been recognized as one of the most deadly or we might say capital sins. It's one one of the sins that affects our lives deeply and creates a bunch of other disorder and chaos and sin in our lives as well. It's a very important one. You see, envy is not just covetousness, and it's not even just the positive sense of seeing someone else and saying, you know, I want that. That can be actually very positive. Like you could see someone who's worked very hard and is successful, and you could say that can have a positive effect. I want that too, and I want to be that way. Or We could see someone who, I know when I was a teenager, I used to listen to classical guitar all the time and I wanted to be a guitarist. And so I listened to great classical guitarists and I saw a classical guitarist and I played, so I tried to get better. That's a good sense of sort of seeing a good and wanting it, but that's not what envy is. And and envy again, isn't just covetousness. Like I want what they have. Envy is more about the internal qualities of the person and their experience. So even if you see they've got a really nice car, a really nice house, it's not just that you want those things. You, you want them you want their experience, and it doesn't motivate you to work harder. Instead, it motivates you toward resentment, a cesspool of self-pity and hatred. Envy, you see, sees other people as rivals. It's based on the horrible human habit of the comparison game. That constant habit of self-conscious comparing ourselves to those around us, whether it's looks or apparel or the car we drive or the house we have or other forms of wealth or talents. And notice we usually tend to do the comparison game with things that we personally do well at, right? That's, that's easier to do the comparison game on that, or maybe not if you tend to feel very inferior. From the time you got up this morning until you walked in here, and sat down, and we sang some songs, went through some liturgy. How many people have you compared yourself to? Maybe superiorly, maybe inferiorly. Either way, this is the root and river of what the Bible would call envy, and it's really the thief of joy. And many of us, you see, 
all of us to some degree, even some of us a lot, we didn't get a foundation from our family of origin of, of love and security. And that especially becomes a source of a lot of envy, a lot of desire for the experiences and the, 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 the way of being that other people have, because that's an amazingly powerful motivator for selfish ambition and boasting and hatred and resentment and slander. All those come from that when we have not had our basic needs met. And the way envy works, what's so powerful about it is that it actually grows in stages. That's why it's one of the deadlier capital sins. It grows in stages. It might just start with some resentful thoughts and then maybe some small murmurings. And then maybe it grows into schadenfreude, right? You know, this great, I hope you know this great German word that we use in English now, schadenfreude, the joy in someone else's shame, right? This is basically what the internet's best at, right? This, and that, that's like a stage of envy, like we actually rejoice in someone else's failure or, a, well, see, it turned out. That's, a, that's what I always thought. And then sometimes it often blossoms into full reviling of others, but often it's more subtle. In fact, a lot of times we don't ever see envy in ourselves because we don't ever want to sort of acknowledge it before others because it would reveal too much about us. As one person has said, envy is like the, the only sin that you don't even get any joy out of. At least the other scenes, you get some pleasure. Envy sucks, right? The whole time because it makes you feel bad that you're, you know, there's some kind of weird pleasure in it, but it's not really a happy one. I know the uh, second Incredibles movie is now out. I haven't seen it yet, so don't spoil it. But I still remember, and I'm sure you do too, the, how great the first one was and the villain there, Incrediboy, as he was called at first and then became Syndrome. If you think about him as, a, as an example of this, he is insensitively spurned as a child. He doesn't have his needs met by his love and affirmation he doesn't get from his hero. And the result is he becomes consumed by envy for Mr. Incredible and what he, what he has. And, and actually that envy is incredibly motivating. Like it motivates him and empowers him and energizes him to study and build machines and build a lair as all good villains have, et cetera. It's very motivating. So it's not like it just made him depressed in sense, but what does it do? It consumes him and destroys him. His sense of insecurity and inferiority consumes and controls his life, not towards more life, but towards destruction. You see, the ultimate problem with envy is that, and the resulting selfishness that comes from it, is that it kills love. It kills love. Because when we are envious of someone else and what they have and what their experience is or what we perceive, it disables us from seeing them with sympathy and care and as a creature made in God's image. Instead, we only see them as a rival. And that's the opposite of God's nature and the opposite of God, how God is and the first and second greatest commandments of love. But James wants to give us a wake-up call to realize that that way of being in the world, that way of looking at others and relating to others, it's not the true wisdom. Even though it motivates much of what we do, it's not the true wisdom. It's actually earthly, unspiritual, even demonic, he says. And if you look again at verse 16, you see that James also reminds us that when we give ourselves over to that envy and then selfish ambition, it actually results in more disorder, more chaos. You know, we have a 
vine, our neighbor's vine that is always growing along our back fence and back in the side. And with so much heat and so much rain this summer already, which has been great. Um, boy, if I just, I went out there and I can't even see the back quarter of the fence or anything anymore. It just overgrows. And it's so much that way that if we let something grow, and I think envy and selfish ambition are this way, it just spreads and takes over so many other aspects of our lives. This God-created principle in the world that good begets good and bad begets bad in Hinduism and Buddhism and Reddit, it's called karma, right? But the Bible calls it reaping what we sow. That if we give ourselves over to envy and selfish ambition, James reminds us, it actually is going to result in a whole bunch of others. That's why it's a, one of the seven deadly sins or capital sins. Now, that's all a good and needed reminder for us and can be helpful. But thankfully, James doesn't just leave us on these negative words about vice. More wonderfully, he describes the opposite. Let me read for you verse 17. But by contrast, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. What beautiful words. You see, that negative exhortation in verses 14 to 16, really, it just pales in comparison. It's a, it's a, a bad tan color compared to the vibrant and life-giving colors that he paints for us when he describes the wisdom that comes from God. It's pure, not, not in the sense of like forgiven or something like we might think of that word, but pure like 100% gold or 100% silver. It is complete, it's dedicated, it's whole. That's, what, that's the first thing James tells us about God's wisdom. It's, it's wholehearted, it's sincere, it's, it shows up in full presence. And then he unpacks it, it's peace-loving. It, it doesn't see people as rivals, it actually rejoices in and pursues loving peaceful relationships with others. It's considerate. It's not selfish in relationships. It's not self-centered. It's not even just insensitive. It doesn't just come into the room. We don't just come into the room and are insensitive to others, but it's actually considerate of other people's feelings and perspectives and and backgrounds. It's submissive, not in an unhealthy or self-deprecating way, but this is really another way I'd suggest you of describing humility. It's not needing to be first It's submissive to God and his plans and his orchestration of things. It's not needing to control everything. It's full of mercy and good fruit. What a lovely picture of vibrancy. Imagine this overflowing basket of of fruit, mercy fruit. And have you experienced someone who just treats you with mercy and grace and just how life-giving that is? And finally, it's impartial and sincere. It treats people equally and well, not just the not just being nice to the people who can do things for us or are naturally attractive, but actually is impartial in its mercifulness and peace-lovingness and kindness. If we had more time today, we could do a little comparison of how this list fits with the Beatitudes that we read and also Paul's listing of the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, I'd encourage you maybe in your private reading, you look at Galatians 5 and Matthew 5 and compare it because it's remarkable. It's not an accident that these things all correspond with each other. And these delicious virtues that James describes, they're, they're habits that are acquired over time. We're not going to be perfect in these. You see, vices are easy. You can do them right now and get really good at them really quickly. Selfishness, envy, etc. But virtues like these, the wisdom from above, 
It requires intentionality and time and practice. The wisdom from God is something that we actively pursue if we want to flourish. And at first, putting on these virtues or practicing them can feel a little clunky and awkward, like learning to swing a golf club or drive a car or ride a horse or do a stick shift, whatever it is. But over time, as we step into them and as we practice them, they become part of who we are and then they transform us. So you see, eventually they become second nature to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We may start by acting according to the virtue, but then eventually we start to act from the virtue as God transforms us into his image by the power of the Spirit. Now, all of that could just sound like another to-do list, another burden, another something we have to be good at, but that's not what God's saying today. He's not giving us a new religious burden. He's not giving us another thing to try to do this week in your own power. Instead, James, God, is inviting us this morning to life. He's putting before us this image of these two ways of wisdom, two ways of being in the world as inviting us to life. And, let, and I think the best of it is the last verse. Let me read verse 18 for you. He says, peacemakers, which is the way he describes kind of all this wisdom from above, who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Do you want a harvest of righteousness? That is, do you want an overflowing life of peace and shalom and flourishing? Then sow in peace. In other words, when we live in these wisdom ways from God, not envious and selfish and boastful, but considerate and merciful and peaceful and peacemaking, we're, we're not just being dutiful toward God and God doesn't just say, well, it's about time you did what I said. No, what happens is when we walk by the power of the Spirit in these beautiful ways, the result is we reap an abundant harvest of more peace and more righteousness. Because you see, walking in God's ways is not just a duty we have to fulfill, it's an invitation to life abundantly. As Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I think very appropriate here is this famous quote from C.S. Lewis that has a bunch of applications and, and many of you are familiar with, but I wanted to get it before us again. Lewis wrote, we are half-hearted creatures. We're not whole often. We're half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Again, there's so many great insights we can draw from these words, but I think applied here, what we can learn is that living in such a way that's envying others and pursuing our own agenda selfishly, it's just dumb. It's childishness in the worst sense. It's this stubborn cluelessness, head down into the slums, missing out on the fullness and richness that God has for us. The point, you see, of this whole text is not to condemn us or pressure us into dutifully obeying God, but to appeal to us to see as God sees and recognize this way of being in the world is not going to result in the flourishing you long for, but God's ways will. So teenagers. It's a very difficult age to be a teenager. You're figuring out who you are in relationship to your parents, your friends, your siblings, 
your bodies, your limbs are growing, your brains are rapidly changing hormonally and just neurologically in many ways. And I know, you teenagers, that comparing yourselves to others is basically the 24-7 junior high and high school experience. It's only ramped up even more in our generation with Instagram and other means by which every single thing that you do has to be amazing and hilarious with filters, right? It's okay, teenagers, to be humble instead. Can I cast a vision for you? To be considerate of others. To actually rejoice in the good that other people have and not see that as a competition with you. I guarantee you that if you will adopt this mindset from God's wisdom, you will find life and freedom. Young adults, it's a scary time. Maybe you're in college, graduating college, maybe low 30s or something. Scary time to try to find your place in the world. Some of you are motivated by seeing successful people around you in a positive sense. Some of you are completely overwhelmed by that. I say to you, it'll be okay. You're not in competition with anyone else around you. You're not sure what to do with your life right now? Well, I'll tell you, again, based on Holy Scripture, that if you will follow Jesus by pursuing wholeness, by pursuing being considerate of others and peace-loving and humble and impartial and sincere, that will shape and guide you into a very meaningful life that is free from the burden of competition. Those of us who are middle-aged, you've established yourself probably with some bumps and bruises, maybe facing some big changes in your life right now. I'd say to you, I'd say to myself, resist the urge to look around at others in comparison, either giving you a sense of superiority or a failure. That looking sideways is not the wisdom from above. Instead, sow peace and mercy in those around you. And finally, we'll just call the last beautiful category the seasoned ones. You have a lot of natural wisdom from living long enough to see the sober reality of all those earlier stages. You're looking back probably with some gratitude. And if you're honest and can face it, I'm sure some regrets. This is a season for you for wholeness, for pursuing the reintegration of your soul after you've gone through all these other things that you might be a blessing to others, not disengaged, sitting back on your laurels, but actually seeking this beautiful culmination of your whole human development and spiritual development into a whole person who has the wisdom that nobody younger than you can have because it takes experience and now channel that to be a blessing of peace and mercy to others. You know, as we've gone through this series of sermons in James, Pastor Kevin has said many times, he's noted that, you know, James is hard. There's some like, on the face kind of stuff that he says, it's hard and challenging. I was thinking this week that James is kind of like sandpaper for the soul. And I was buying sandpaper 
sandpaper this week. That's what made me think of it. And that is that there's all different grits of sandpaper. And the Bible has some big, comfortable chairs in it, probably mostly big, comfortable chairs that invites us. But it also has some sandpaper because that sandpaper is necessary to rough off some smooth edges. And sometimes, and for some of us, and on different topics, sometimes the grit is a little coarser than others. But the point is that God is shaping us into his image, smooth and beautiful and mahogany stained with his own blood, but shaped into his image. And that's a good thing. Don't resist that. Don't be resentful. If you feel a little sandpaper from James' words here, that's a gift. It's an invitation to life, no matter what stage you're in. You know, to conclude, let me remind you of a couple of people, one of whom you know well, probably, or most of you do. That's Eric Liddell, or Little, I'll just call him Eric Liddell, the Olympic, Scottish Olympic gold medalist who won for running in 1924 and uh, was memorialized in the great movie Chariots of Fire. Many of you have seen it. If you haven't seen that in a while, it's good to go back and watch it. So Eric Liddell, and then the other guy in the movie, you may forget his name, Harold Abrams, both born around 1900, right in that area. And this wonderful movie shows these two very different lives these, between these rival runners. See, Abrams was driven to excellence. He was certainly motivated to be a great runner, and he was. But he was driven to excellence because he was afraid to lose. He was always comparing himself to others. He said, if I can't win, I won't run. And so he's defensive. He's afraid of being shown inferior. He's happy with himself only when he beats everyone else out. So his his identity and his worth are dependent on being in rivalry with others. But Liddell, this wonderful, deeply devoted Christian man, he's not motivated by winning because as he famously said, when he runs, Not just when he wins, but when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. He loves competition, not because he needs to win, but because he loves to run well. And so his competitors, he loves them because he he sees them in partners as partners in seeking excellence, not as rivals who would strip him of his own excellence. You see, when even when Abrams wins, he's still fearful. This is the death, friends, of the comparison game, whether it's in sports or money or appearance or whatever it is. The death of the comparison game is that it'll never be enough. It'll never end. Even if you win, then you're looking for the person behind you who's going to beat you next time. But whether Liddell wins or loses, he rejoices and gives thanks. Abram's love for himself is contingent on his performance. And friends, that's bondage. That's powerlessness. That's slavery. But Liddell has the calm confidence of one who knows that he's worth something, whether he places or finishes or doesn't at all or wins. So he runs with joy and freedom and and not fear. And you may know the rest of his story is that after he wins the Olympics, he moves to China as a missionary, gets caught up in World War II and dies in a Japanese internment camp in China in 1945. Olympic gold medalist. But he gladly did it. Two men... I'd suggest to you, one, a picture of wisdom from below, rivalry, envy, selfish ambition. One, a picture of wisdom from above. 
One of them experienced life and flourishing, the other bondage and slavery. I want to give you this quote from one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner. Speaking of the seven deadly sins, he says, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and pride, those five, are no more than sad efforts to fill the empty place where love belongs. And then the other two, anger and sloth, are just two things that may happen when you find out that even all seven of the deadly sins can't fill that empty place. Here's the question. Where in the world could you get that kind of security and freedom to live in such a way that you're not in competition with other people? Well, here's the great news. That empty place where love belongs, that place that gives freedom from needing to compare ourselves that Liddell and a million other Christians have known can be found all throughout the Bible because this is how God views us and relates to us. And I just want to put two beautiful passages before you, both that reflect the heart of God for us, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I and the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And from the New Testament, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in or through us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Very same things that James is describing as wisdom. Those who live according to the flesh may have their minds set on what the flesh desires, selfishness and competition, et cetera. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Beautiful words to remind us, even as we close the service, that we can't do this wisdom from above on our own, but we have the security, if you are trusting in Christ as your life, we have the security to be free to live in this way of wisdom. And that's good news. And so each Sunday, as a celebration and a remembrance of this, we remember that the God of the universe became enfleshed, took upon flesh and lived and taught and was willing to suffer and die with this bread representing as he did on the night he was betrayed and about to be killed. He broke it and said, this, this is my God in flesh broken for you. And this wine is my blood poured out so that you can be secure so that you can be free to be filled with the spirit and live according to God's wisdom rather than according to the wisdom of the world. So what we're gonna do 
to end this service, in addition to singing a little bit, we invite you to come forward. And if this is your first time here, how we do this is we take a piece of bread and we dip it in either the wine or the juice. Uh, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, we are thrilled you're here. This is not a magic ritual that's gonna do anything for you. Don't partake of it. Just watch and observe and sing or listen, whatever you want to do. But if you're a Christian, come forward as an act of faith to renew your remembrance of the security you have in Christ that we might be people of his wisdom. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.